Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. This is a sad morning here at Today and at NBC News. Just moments ago, NBC News Chairman Andy Lack sent the following note to our organization. Dear colleagues, on Monday night, we received a detailed complaint from a colleague about inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace by Matt Lauer. It represented, after serious review, a clear violation of our company's standards. As a result, we have decided to terminate his employment. While it is the first complaint about his behavior in the over 20 years he has been at NBC News, We were also presented with reason to believe this may not have been an isolated incident. Our highest priority is to create a workplace environment where everyone feels safe and protected and to ensure that any actions that run counter to our core values are met with consequences no matter who the offender. We are deeply saddened by this turn of events, but we will face it together as a news organization and do it in as transparent a manner as we can. That is the statement from our chairman, Andy Lack. And we just learned this moments ago, just this morning. As I'm sure you can imagine, we are devastated and we are still processing all of this. And I will tell you right now, we do not know more than what I just shared with you. But we will be covering this story as reporters, as journalists. I'm sure we will be learning more details in the hours and days to come. And we promise we will share that with you. Mm -hmm. And Hoda, I mean, you know, for the moment, all we can say is that we are heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for Matt. He is my dear, dear friend and my partner, and he is beloved by many, many people here. And I'm heartbroken for the brave colleague who came forward to tell her story and any other women who have their own stories to tell. And we are grappling with a dilemma that so many people have faced these past few weeks. How do you reconcile your love for someone with the revelation that they have behaved badly? The purge of the perverts continues, my friends. Matt Lauer is out. You have no doubt seen, heard, read about that. That was from the, the Today Show, right? I never even, these morning shows, I don't watch any of them, so I don't know. I, I don't need somebody to explain to me how to make the best feta and watermelon salad over the summertime. I, I can figure that out on my own. Um, but nonetheless... People seem to like those shows. I don't know why. I think that they make the the shows on Bravo about the real housewives look like Shakespeare. But people like the, you know, they like these shows. Okay. Fair enough. They like the Today Show. They like Good Morning America. Uh, and I guess they used to like Matt Lauer, but not so much anymore. Matt Lauer, you, you dirty men. Uh, it is grotesque. Well, we have found out about Mr. Lauer now, and it is yet another very high-profile, lionized, celebrated, heralded, quasi-worshipped member of the elite media left that when the truth finally comes out, it's just a total jerk and a dirtbag and the worst. 
I don't know. It's tough between who Tyrone, who is worse, Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer, based on the latest. Lauer. Lauer worse. Amy, who is worse, Charlie Rose or Lauer? Amy also goes Lauer. Charlie Rose is pretty bad, though. There was some, you know, he was doing the naked man thing, you know, where he's naked and he's saying, look at me, I'm an old, gross, grabbing sexual harasser who's naked in front of you. I mean, those of you who listen to the show know I have been saying you can go back and listen to some of the earlier, you know, we have it on the podcast. It's everything I say here is, is recorded and so therefore a matter of record on the podcast of the show which if you're listening, you should download on iTunes, especially because we'll have new history deep dives coming out in 2018, and you want to be a part of that podcast stream right away. But I have been saying, oh, wait, just wait. The media's glee at some of the uh, fallen figures from Fox News. I said, just wait until you see what's going on at the other news networks. Those of you listening to the show, you know I've been saying it. And I don't just say it as a guess. You see, from where I am in the media game, I know a lot of the younger, and I say the word younger, meaning people who are, you know, 25 to 40 in the media game. And a lot of the young female producers of the different networks, I've worked with them, I've interacted with them, and I hear stuff. A lot of places. I hear things. Now, I don't hear things to the level where I'm not an employee of these places. I can't go to HR. I don't know anything specifically. But, you know, you, you hear the equivalent of, yeah, that's a guy you don't want to get in the elevator with. And Lauer, from even my own little position, and I'm not somebody who's hooked in at NBC at all. Right? I think I did MSNBC once, like seven years ago. They're like, that kid's smart. Don't bring him back. Uh, that was the end of that. And because I debated somebody that I was supposed to get annihilated by, and it didn't work. They were like, wait a second. This kid with the poofy hair is a handful. Get him off the set. Uh, so I don't know stuff, but I know people in the business, and we talk, and Lauer was, it was known that he was gross. It was known. These people are liars. They are straight up lying to you now. I don't know who is lying, but I know there are some. Oh, we, you know, we had no idea. Matt was so wonderful. That was amazing. Oh, okay. You had no idea that, say, the following was happening with the highest paid. You should all know this. The highest paid TV news personality, period. $25 million a year for this guy. And you might think that $25 million a year would buy some level of professionalism from an employee. You might think that Lauer, who's seen by millions and millions of people who, look, I understand. I'm like, Ms. Molly loves the morning show sometimes. I get it. You want lighter fare. I'm just, I'm just in a curmudgeonly mood about them today. I don't watch them, but I don't begrudge those who do. I get it, right? Sometimes you want to, you know, you, you, one moment you're talking politics, the next moment you're talking about veal piccata. I, you know, I get it. You know, tomato, tomato. Fine. But Lauer's getting paid $25 million a year. He's getting to interview presidential candidates and presidents. He's treated as the pinnacle of the journalistic establishment. And he's got all these people around him now, including we played. That was how they started the Today Show this morning. We're saying, you know, we had no idea. I mean, Matt is so wonderful. Hmm. Well, here's what Variety has to say about how Matt is, quote, so wonderful or not, quote, but you know what I mean. 
Quote, as the co-host of NBC's Today, Matt Lauer once gave a colleague a sex toy as a present. It included, by the way, young ones listening, a little bit of a content warning here. So if you got a young one, I'm going to give you a moment here. No, no young ones. But this is I'm reading to you from a variety report. I'm not this is not extemporaneous, but we're about to get into some. Some some shady territory here. So just a content warning on that quote and included an explicit note about how he wanted to use it on her, which left her mortified. On another day, he summoned a different female employee to his office and then dropped his pants, showing her his. Yeah, that's right. After the employee declined to do anything visibly shaken, he reprimanded her for not engaging in a sexual act. He would sometimes quiz female producers. Those are people who work for him, everyone. Those are his employees. He can have any of them fired. Let me get back into the piece here. He would sometimes quiz female producers about who they'd slept with, offering to trade names. And he loved to engage in a crass quiz game with men and women in the office, blank, marry or kill, in which he would identify the female co-host that he would most want to sleep with. End quote. Oh, by the way, this is just today. This is just what we know so far. Now. Many of you work in offices. I know some of you probably work from home or some of you just raise families. You've probably spent time in offices. Do do you think that with office gossip and people in close quarters working together very long hours in the news business, no one knew about this? You think his his co-host, his female co-host never heard about this? People are liars. Now, I believe one step forward, right, and said something to HR that was what we, we, that's what's believed, Tyrone. Right? We're still getting reports in on this. It's believed that one step forward, and not necessarily HR, but maybe told the boss. Told the boss. Although I mean, you tell the big boss. You know, the big boss is supposed to tell HR. So, so, so one tried to blow the whistle. That it appears. And then, okay, thank you. And then that raises the question: Were they just protecting Matt Lauer? Were they doing everything to make sure that the cash cow was in place and happy? The answer, I believe, uh, the answer is, I think, quite certainly, yes. There were plenty of signs. You co-hosted the Today Show with Matt Lauer for 15 years. What is Matt's most annoying habit? (laughs) Hmm. He pinches me on the ass a lot. Wow! I would have a problem with that. That was back in 2012. That was Katie Couric. Another ruthless media personality, by the way. I mean, any, any, you know. Ugh. Heard stories about her. Not a nice. Plays the smiling nice lady on TV. Not a nice person. Just putting that out there. Uh, nonetheless, not, based on reputation. I've never met her, but based on reputation, not a nice person. But more to the point, she's like, yeah, he pinches me on the butt. I can tell you right now that I have never, nor has anyone that I have ever seen in an office setting, ever pinched a female 
colleague or employee on her hindquarters has never happened. Tyrone is also giving me the full wave off. No, no, that does not happen. That is not a thing that happens, right? This isn't, I was posing for a picture and my hand was in the, you know, in the small of her back instead of in on the shoulder or, you know, no, no, there is no butt pinching that happens in a normal office and an office uh, workplace environment, but they knew and they didn't care because once again, he thought he was untouchable. Once again, Matt Lauer believed that he was so both valuable financially and valuable politically, I should note, because he was a committed Democrat. You knew that he would come at things from the left. Here's a little here's a little taste of what that's been like. This idea that you are the one, Oprah's words. Um, or that one. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that one's John McCain's words. Uh, people have called you the savior, the messiah, the messenger of change. The expectations have been raised Talking to such to a level. Are you going to have to consciously manage expectations during the first several months of your administration? Yes, even before I'm sworn in. More of our exclusive interview with the Speaker of the House, John Boehner. You know, he can invite anyone he wants to to sit in his box to watch the State of the Union address. He reserves the seats for inner-city students. They're your guests. Could you blame them, though, if they're not a little mesmerized by Barack Obama tonight? He's the nation's first African-American president. Is he in your opinion the most inspirational African-American living (laughs) right now? As this criticism Obama worship. I mean, we, we could uh, we could go all day with Matt Lauer, leftist stuff. And I remember watching an interview with Ann Coulter that he did where he was just smarmy. He was just nasty to her. You know, Ann's like, whatever, bring it, punk. But, you know, he was terrible to her in the interview. And th- he thought he was protected because of that. And he was until now. Things have changed. But this is a thought that I want to leave you with before we go into a break here. And we've got so I've got more on North Korea. Got a, a ton of stuff I want to get into today with you on the show. And that's the following. You know, we thought that 2017 would be the year that the political swamp was drained in D.C. But what we really see is that 2017 has been the year the media swamp has been drained. And it's not over yet. Still a long way to go. But this is big. Einstein, Charlie Rose, uh, Matt Lauer, you know, you got uh, Garrison Keeler. I even, I didn't even, he just, that just happened. I got to tell you more about that. He's out. He's out as well. So, but this is the year that the media swamp has been started to be drained. Uh, what do you think about Matt Lauer being out? You got, do I have some Matt Lauer fans out there? I've always thought he was the most overpaid human being on the planet. So I'm curious. Let me let me know if I'm wrong. You like the, the smarmy, elitist, liberal, left-wing charm from that couch surrounded by all the ladies on the Today Show? I don't know. Maybe. Let me know if I'm wrong. Miss um, Molly will probably yell at me and say, he was nice on TV. But anyway, uh, we'll get back to this and, and, uh, and a whole lot more, folks. Big show coming. Stay with me. O'Reilly was forced out of his top-rated Fox News show, The O'Reilly Factor, over allegations of sexual harassment. Today also marks the release of Bill's new book, written with Martin Dugard, Killing England. You were accused of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. You said at the time you did absolutely nothing wrong. Do you stand by that? I do. You were the guy that the ratings and the revenues were built on. You carried that network on your shoulders. Think about those five women um, and what they did. They came forward 
forward and filed complaints against the biggest star at the network they worked at. Think of how intimidating that must have been. Karma, my friends. Karma, indeed. That was Matt Lauer to Bill O'Reilly. Oh, think about how you're the biggest star at your network and the, the trials and tribulations. Those are, oh, yeah, Matt Lauer. I wonder what that's like. You know that he had a, this came out in the Variety Story too, he had a special lock at his desk. He could just press a button and the door would lock. No, there are probably some other executives who have this, but, hmm, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting decision to make. You know, this is in an interior office, right? It's not, this isn't really a security issue. It's a privacy issue. And why not just, you know, tell the person to lock the door? Why would you need to be able to lock? Because you don't want to have to get up to lock it? Hmm. Hey, look, I'm sure some people have it with good reason, but Matt Lauer, not one of them, it seems. Brent in New Mexico, iHeart app. What's going on, Brent? Hey, bud, Shield tie. Shield tie. Hey, I'll keep it quick, but this, I wanted you to expand on this for me. I got into an argument with a guy in college that was a journalist major years ago about a baseball player that signed a contract for like $200 million. And I was like, well, how do these guys like Matt Lau or whatever make $25 million a year? And he was telling me that they speak perfect English, there's no dialect, and I always thought that was BS, but I just was hoping if you could explain to me a little bit more on what is it that makes these guys special, because I really just don't get it. Well, there are people that are executives at a place like NBC, which is a major legacy institution and really has a built-in audience and and built-in revenue stream, and they get to decide who gets paid what on the show, right? So, you know, think of it like if if you, you know, inherited uh, $100 million, which I know would be really cool, from your family and, you know, or from a, as a family business, and now you're running that business, but it's already there. You already have the $100 million business. And it's making, you know, a certain amount of revenue a year. You can kind of determine what to pay the people if you own the business that you want. How, why is he worth $20 million a year? Because the Today Show probably bills $100 million a year. And they, uh, meaning the people that run the Today Show, want to pay him that. Could they pay him five? And, ha- and would he still do the job? Yeah, actually. But, you know, the... the, the uh, Media executives wield a lot of power, and they get to make these determinations, and a lot of times they make really bad ones. I mean, Katie Kirk, for example, was wildly overpaid. Wildly overpaid. And, I mean, based on the ratings and what they paid other people. So we can see how this goes. It's not a... People say, oh, it's the free market. It's what the market will bear. I mean, it's kind of free market the way that, you know, like some people are born with a giant trust fund, and like, yeah, they have a lot of money, and like, that's the free market, but... It's not really, you know, it's not really what it sounds like, is it? Anyway, we'll be back with more. Stay with me. CNN. Who's been telling you guys the other news networks it was all going to start falling apart with this sexual harassment stuff and they were all dirty? Not everybody, but there were a lot of folks at these different places who, sure enough, here we go. CNN senior producer on Jake Tapper's show, State of the Union, has been tossed. Three women complained about his harassing behavior. That just happened now. Jake Tapper himself. Confirmed it, said his senior producer at CNN is out. There will be more. There will be more. Just give it some time. All right, to help us uh, look at the everything, go to the 30,000-foot view of this, the legal implications, and the what the heck is going on. Emily Campagno is with us. 
She is an attorney, uh, a legal and a sports business analyst. Emily, great to have you back. Thanks so much. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. So I don't want to even ask you a, a specific question yet about about Matt Lauer, about some of this other because I, I want to know like what kind of what kind of liability, for example, does NBC have if this stuff was known? We'll get there in a second. Emily, what is going on here? Like, why is this happening now? And and what, what just what is your take on all this? I'm calling it the purge of the perverts, but. <laughs> I like it. It has a nice ring to it. I, you know, I will say this is just from a personal perspective. So I'm, I'm speaking now not as an attorney, but that it seems like there's been this seismic shift and cultural change in empowerment of these victims, men and women, to come forward and feel that for the first time that their stories will be heard and that corroboration by others at the time that they've told that that's enough just to be believed and that in this climate now that rather than bringing with it a host of shame and potentially that that knee-jerk reaction of not being believed it's shifted and i also feel like with with this seismic shift there's a concerted effort toward doing the right thing toward accountability and that there's no such thing anymore as, well, it's so far in the past, never mind. It's like a, an, it's an addressing of a reckoning, regardless of timing. And also, I think that we're seeing this in an industry pattern sense. So it's no longer just, you know, this one random person, um, their allegations and their story. We're hearing it as part of this larger pattern. And we are, as you're saying, purging it in all industries, in Hollywood, in journalism, in politics. A lot of different industries now that maybe heretofore these voices would have been just totally silenced. Now, Emily, uh, and correct me if any of this needs needs to be adjusted or, or corrected, but you have been around the world of professional sports. You've been a professional uh, NFL cheerleader. You are a lawyer now. You are a media personality. You've been in a, in a bunch of different professional arenas over the course of your career thus far. And uh, so if I miss something or if there's an addition there, let me know. But ha- have you seen a-, a lot of the kind of harassment or heard about a lot of, you know, given professional sports, media, I'm assuming in the legal world, you know, probably one of the less likely places to see really, ag- uh, you know, abusive sexual harassment in a workplace setting would be at a law firm where everybody has a law degree. But at some of these other places you've worked, have you either seen this happening yourself or do you? Do you feel like you heard a lot of stories of this? Is, is this surprising to you at all, what you're hearing about the Matt Lowers of the world? Um, I don't think that... No, it does not surprise me. I will say that. Um, secondly, to address one of your questions in there, I have, I have been fortunate and lucky enough to have escaped all kinds of egregious stories, the likes of which we are hearing now that are totally rampant. I have absolutely seen and um, experienced, you know, um, you have friends and colleagues, I'm assuming, whether at the, you know, within the NFL or wherever uh, in media, I'm assuming you've heard stuff. Totally. And that's what I was going to say that for me personally, you know, I've, it's not as if I've been living on cloud nine. I don't want to say that. But, you know, of course, I've experienced a lot of stuff, but nothing so, nothing terrible. I've been very fortunate for that. Um, I've absolutely had close friends and close colleagues who have divulged stories, like horror stories to me, where I'm, I just sit there aghast and I, um, 
you know, on, on multi, on a multitude of levels, I feel pain for them and angst. And then to address what you said about law firms, I will say no industry is protected here. No one is, um, Certainly, there are no saints around town. I'll just say that. So ironically, I think in a lot of industries where you do expect the utmost professionalism or adherence to the law, absolutely not. That culture of harassment can be pervasive in, in anywhere, anywhere at all. All right. And Emily, now I want to ask you about some of the, the legal realities here. So this all comes out about Matt Lauer. I'm, I'm guessing because the Look, look, it, it's out there. The, the economic damage that Fox News has suffered because of allegations uh, has been substantial. I mean, there have been reports about tens of millions of dollar settlements. And overall, you're looking at, uh, I think, a total settlement value that's north of one hundred million dollars. That's what's been reported. Uh, I'm assuming NBC News might be in for a whole lot of legal trouble right now. And let's go off, yes to that, let's go off of what we know so far. So this is a relatively new story, right? And from what we know, from what NBC has said publicly, they said, or their spokesman has said, the current executive, the current C-suite, essentially, the minute we learned about this and realized that it, it, you know, it was a credible story, A, and B, that it was not an isolated incident, that we took swift action. And it remains to be seen what will be uncovered next. Maybe this is the end of it. You know, stranger things have happened. But we've also learned, for example, that there was a, a button or there's an allegation of a button in Matt Lauer's former desk where he could lock his office from the inside. That does not happen by one person. I don't I mean, unless he's handy with a drill, I there had got to be someone else that knew about that. Now, they, the NBC spokesperson stressed current management. Does that mean that prior management knew? So building on what we know and for listeners, Here's the deal. If an employer knew or should have known about harassment, let's just take harassment right now, um, knew or should have known, then they are totally liable under federal and state law because obviously harassment is always illegal in the workplace. Now, the victim, his or her, him or herself, they also have a cause of action against the actual perpetrator separately as a tort. So that's when you sue someone and you say, you harassed me, you, you know, I, I suffered emotional distress, physical distress, potentially, there's, there's that element. So there's the victim to the employer, look, you knew or you should have known. There's the victim to the actual harasser, you know, you hurt me. And then there's the whole criminal side of it, which is a whole different, you know, can of beans. But that has to do with if the, if there was force, right, if, if it was unwanted, it goes a step beyond, you know, I felt, I felt like I had to, I felt pressured, or I felt like that's how I had to keep my job, right? Or, or you know, that, that kind of silencing aspect. So it goes back to whether NBC knew or should have known. Now, again, their, their public statement, their public position right now is, we just found out, we immediately took action. If that's the end of it, then they've totally acted honorably and, and within their legal rights, and what's next, we don't know. But there might be a gray area. There absolutely likely is a gray area, and that's what we're going to see uncovered in the future here, the near future. Now, I, I've been saying that uh, I, I have questions, at least, maybe concerns, about what could be done in terms of changing laws to address these issues. Because, as you said, harassment is already illegal in the workplace. Obviously, unwanted sexual touching or you know, physical uh, abuse or assault, that's illegal in all 50 states, too. Uh, there are... I know at the federal government level, there are reporting requirements even for management chain 
doesn't matter what they think of the event. If there are allegations of harassment or abuse, they have to take it to certain authorities. So I just want to know from a a procedural uh, legal mechanistic point of view, is there anything that should change? I mean, you would know a lot more about this than I do. Is is there some law that could be passed? Is there some regulation that could be in place that would stop the Matt Lowers of the world? Because I can't think of one, and my guess is not really, but I want to know. <laughs> right. Well, I think that kind of begs the larger question is, are you the kind of person that believes in greater restrictions and greater greater laws? Will they actually make a difference? Or do you feel like what we have right now, look, it's all illegal. So what, what more do we need, like you're saying? Maybe it was simply that cultural shift this seismic sea tide change that people are now being believed. And with the advent and kind of explosion of things like Twitter, where someone's voice can have equal rippling effect as someone who has, you know, who has a platform on TV and has 5 million viewers every morning. Well, that's, you know, all things being equal now, maybe, maybe that's all that had to occur. But I will point out, First of all, yes to what you cited are definitely, and, and especially, for example, in governmental agencies, there's a duty to report anything. There's also, let's take California, for example. Now, after the Catholic Church abuse scandal, they enacted a, a law or a statute where victims could sue, but it's, it's um, civil, not criminal. So a victim can just sue someone who knew about an abuse, knew about kind of a rampant uh, pattern, and had a duty to try to stop it and didn't. But here's the thing about that. Number one, it's one year statute of limitations. Number two, it's only in California. And, you know, that's, that's relatively new. So from what you're saying, I mean, throwing it out there as an option, well, does that mean someone higher up than you in the chain? Does that mean if you, what if, what if you're the executive producer? What if the only, what if it's someone below you in the hierarchy that knew about it and does nothing. Well, then what's the duty there? So you're right that there, of course, could be, um, could be detailed amendments to existing laws. But the other thing is, I mean, we've seen this, frankly, with, for example, like the tax code. The more detailed you make laws, that means the more you can argue your way out of it. So I will say that sometimes it's easier to make something generally illegal and leave it up to a jury's interpretation. You know what I mean? Leave it up so that way you're not being so specific that it's clearly, oh, well, it's not that specific sentence. We're clearly outside of it, right? It kind of it, it allows for more. Catch-all statutes allow for more. Well, of course, you're also going to have circumstances when we're talking about specifically verbal harassment, right? I mean, Matt Lauer, the allegations are he exposed himself. I mean, th- these aren't these aren't problems that normal people acting in good faith have in the workplace, but there, there are some other cases where they said it's comments, and, and there's certainly contextual issues there. There is gray area, and I, and I think you're spot on when you say that you don't want to be hyper-legislative about these issues such that now you've got the, uh, the law trying to dictate what speech is acceptable and what speech is not in a workplace setting, because that will get... Uh, very tricky, very quickly. But uh, Emily, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Everyone can check out your latest at emilycampagno.com, correct? Absolutely. And on Twitter, at Emily Campagno. Thank you so much for having me, back. Of course. Attorney and uh, legal analyst, Emily Campagno, everybody. Thanks, Emily. Great to talk to you. All right, team, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Politics is in the air, or, or it's on the air, at least. I don't know if it's in the air. Oh, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to have all of this entertainment for free? 
Watching Donald Trump in a foreign policy debate was like hearing a boy in the seventh grade. Garrison Keillor. He's no longer going to be telling his stories on the radio because he's also out for sexual harassment misconduct. Garrison Keillor of NPR, a prairie... Was Prairie Home Companion? Prairie House Companion? What is it? Prairie Home Companion. I, I don't listen to NPR. In fact, when I go into a place and I've got NPR playing, I'm usually kind of like, what kind of stuff's going on here? Uh, but yeah, he's also out. He got fired from Minnesota Public Radio, which as somebody who's on the radio makes a living doing this, uh, there shouldn't be any publicly funded radio. You know, that's maybe in other countries to spread democracy and freedom and stuff, but not, not here. You know, NPR, uh-uh, not okay. But I digress. Dr. Rick in Maryland wants to chat. What's up, Dr. Rick? Good to have you back. Hey, Shields High, Buck. Shields High. Well, you know, I tell you, um, and I've had this come up a lot with uh, patients of mine, this whole situation. And for me, it is just entirely consistent with the Judeo-Christian view of humanity that, you know, human beings are flawed creatures. Uh, we're not inherently good. We need to strive every day to be good. And this is even highlights more the mocking they did of our vice president, who had a very wise uh, rule, which was not to be alone with a woman other than his wife. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it's just showing more and more the, the wisdom of, uh, you know, we're supposed to flee from the near occasion of sin and not kind of hang around and um, the trouble we can get us in. All right, Dr. Rick, thank you, sir. Uh, Shields high. So, couple things, couple things I would like to uh, put out there right now. First of all, it, it should not be left out of this conversation that NBC this morning in their statement was like, whoa, you know, we, I don't know, I'm doing like an, a Garrison Keeler voice now. Oh, uh, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. Uh, No, they were acting as though they acted right away as soon as they knew that there was a problem with Matt Lauer. But the truth is that media outlets had been working on the story for weeks. The truth is that they knew that the avalanche was coming. And their little comment this morning, we have reason to believe that there's more. They knew there was more. They knew there was a lot more. And I'm telling you that they knew long before this story even broke today that Matt Lauer was up to all kinds of shady business. Uh, So with all of that, I would just say that uh, don't allow these organizations to propagandize their inaction on this into action. Uh, Let's remember that NBC News now tried to kill the Weinstein story, would not go with the Weinstein story, even though uh, Ronan Farrow, give him credit for it, signed, sealed, and delivered, suppressed the Weinstein story, and now we find out that their single biggest, highest-paid star was a freaky predator. Uh, you know, NBC, somebody somebody want to explain how the head of NBC News keeps his job at this point? I'm just wondering. 
You know, what does it take over there? The story that got this whole movement going, NBC tried to quash. And their biggest star is showing his man parts to employees. Not at their request. Where's the accountability? There is a systematic nature to many of these abuse stories, meaning that the system around the individual enabled it, allowed it to happen, covered for him, whether it's Weinstein or Charlie Rose or now uh, Matt Lauer. I don't know. The Garrison Keillor stuff, not much detail so far, but he says it's just like his hand went in the wrong place or something on a photo. I, I don't know. But my guess is it always starts out with some of these guys with, oh, it was just one thing. And then there are, you know, one accuser turns into five. And, oh, my hand was in the wrong place, turns into, I mean, sometimes I just walk through the office naked. And then the person's out. I have a feeling we'll find out more. I don't know about uh, Mr. Keeler. So, I want to talk to you about North Korea, friends, and uh, some other stories, too. Let's switch it up. What do we do about the nukes? We'll get into that and more. Stay with me. A vote to cut taxes is a vote to put America first again. We want to do that. We want to put America first again. It's time to take care of our workers, to protect our communities, and to rebuild our great country. President Trump says tax reform needs to happen, would be great for us. By the way, growth in the last quarter of uh, fiscal 2017, I think was at 3.3. GDP was 3.3. Pretty good. I would like to hear a little more talk about that from the administration. It would be nice to have a bit of, oh gosh, dare I say it, uh, message discipline. Not a term you hear a lot these days. Not a lot of message discipline. Not a lot of tweet discipline either. But let's talk about what's going on with the Senate and where this tax bill stands right now. The Senate has voted. I know. See, I don't spend a lot of your time on the tax thing because until it gets through, we don't even know, or at least later on in the process, we can't even know what the tax bill is, right? Because they're they're making changes right now to it. So I can get all excited. I go, oh, gosh, you mean they're getting rid of the million-dollar Tax credit for the tuna cannery in American Samoa? Oh, no. You know, there's stuff that'll change. I know, I'm really focused on that tuna cannery in America. I'm going to have to go. I don't know if American Samoa is a nice place to visit or not. I have no idea. I'm sure it's war- I know it's warm. So there's that. Uh, but there will be changes to whatever this tax bill is. That is happening right now. Uh, that said, the Senate has voted... Along party lines, fifty-two forty-eight to start debate on the tax plan. So now they got to go to a now they go to floor debate. Twenty hours of that—that's going to be exciting. Get out your popcorn and pop open the C-span, my friends. Woo! Uh, also, you have a few interesting changes that might get thrown into the mix here. Senators Marco Rubio of Florida and Mike Lee of Utah are pushing to expand the child tax credit. Uh, and they want a corporate rate of 22%, not 20%. And there's also a possible change coming. I know I sound. it sounds like you're on the phone with your accountant right now. I'm like, well, excuse me, sir. Did you uh, pull together all your receipts for fiscal 2016-17? Yay or nay? Uh, but 
Republicans are now discussing the possibility of a pass-through uh, for this for the owners of pass through businesses and look, Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, was saying, "Look, I, I need, I need this change for some people that are business owners that pay the individual rate. We need to change that for pass through corporations." And I don't know. So it looks like Ron Johnson, Senator Johnson, will get his way. So he was an early, maybe no, or he was an early maybe, and now he's a a likely yes. So that's that's changed. The final Senate vote. Uh, will be, uh, well, they've got 20 hours, right? So, and then there'll be amendment votes. So it could be later this week that you get the final Senate vote. Uh, and then the House and the Senate has to go, they have to reconcile things. I know, this is like how a bill becomes a law. It's like I'm doing a sixth grade social studies class here. But, I mean, I wonder. I feel like if you walked around and asked most people, so what happens if a Senate and the House have different bills? Well, I don't know. They're just, just like smash them together. You know, cut up one, cut up the other. You know, some scratch tape and maybe some, uh, you know, some white out and you make it happen. I don't think that's how it goes. It goes into conference instead. Uh, but that means that there will be some changes to this. And the... Uh, the single biggest, well, the biggest debate that's going to happen, and this is, you see this, and and I'm going to now give you the other side of this from the New York Times. My concern, I know, I'm, I'm going to be reading a quote to you from the New York Times' analysis of the tax bill. Get ready. Hold on to your seats, everybody. Uh, here's my been my concern all along, that Trumpism is a populist movement, and the biggest part of the tax reform affects corporations. Now, I understand, I understand, and you can send me the Facebook messages and such to remind me, but I, I know that more uh, more money in the balance sheets for corporations is supposed to lead to greater investment, greater hiring, higher wages. I'm not sure that's how it works out in practice. And I, and I, I know, and you could bring fancy economists on air, and we will try, we'll bring some more on. We'll, we'll invite some of them on, you know? You know, the guys were like, well, I worked for Reagan. Yeah, I know, great, but... Let's talk about what's going on now and how things would work. And you get a lot of the you get a lot of the uh, the usual song and dance here about how uh, you have better better outcome for everybody if the corporate tax rate goes down a little bit. Here's what the Times said. Look, I know it's the Times, and they tweeted out something today that was the phone numbers of senators that they want their. Re- this was the New York Times from an official account. They want their readers to pressure senators to vote against the Senate bill if it includes Obamacare. So the New York Times is an unregulated left-wing pack uh, with the trappings of a news organization. But it acts as a political action committee without having to go through all the pack regulations. That said, here is the Times' analysis of this tax bill. I'm just trying to be skeptical, everybody. I'm just trying to cover all the bases here. You know, MAGA, 3.3 growth, America first economy, get all that. Great. I'm all for it. But stagnant wages and hourly uh, jobs that are are hourly wage and that are part time or less than full time, less than full employment. That has become far too much the norm in this country. It's been a long process, but it has been happening here. It is why many of the statistics we use, things like the unemployment rate, are really not particularly helpful. 
as much as we would like. Does it feel like unemployment's at an all-time low and everything's amazing right now? A lot of you are uh, thinking you're shaking your heads. No. Things don't feel... Do, do you feel like you are more prosperous? I mean, here, here in New York City, I can tell you that you have a situation where none of the millennials can, can afford any real estate. And when I mean the city, I mean extended city, like New York area. Can't afford any real estate. So there are some... There are some economic dynamics that are occurring that are not reflected in, well, you know, inflation zero and the unemployment rate's 4%. And okay, those are the metrics that are used. And there are many ways to game those metrics, or there are many things that are left out of those metrics. So, look, I think that there's a lot of economic activity that's been happening this year that's, that's great. Uh, and I think that Trump is way more favorable towards business and private enterprise interest than his predecessor. No question. And confidence matters. Setting a tone of growth and uh, and taking a bullish approach helps. And the lack of regulation helps. There's a lot of good stuff. But this tax bill, I'm not sure it's going to be as great as they're saying it is. And if we're going to put pressure on your senator, members of the House. I mean, if, if we're going to speak up, it would be now, right? Now would be the time. I would note that when the Democrats were trying to sell Obamacare, yeah, there was the big, uh, the big ticket, you know, we're going to cover everybody and the coverage is going to be great and everyone's going to be covered. But they really sold it. I mean, the, the, the sweeteners of that whole process were you can stay on your parents' health insurance until you're 26 and... No pre-existing conditions. And no pre-existing conditions was the main one. That's really all anybody was hearing about from the Democrats. With Republicans on this, they keep saying the middle class will get more money, but the Democrats say, no, they won't. Yes, they will. No, they won't. Yes, they will. No, it's going back and forth on this. And the only thing that everyone seems to agree on is that corporations will get a tax cut. Here's what the Times writes about corporate uh, corporate tax cuts. And, you know, you, you can agree or disagree with this, but I'm, I am putting it out there. Trump says tax overhaul will bring home four trillion. History suggests it will go to shareholders. President Trump said on Tuesday the tax bill will prompt trillions of dollars currently held offshore to come flooding back to the United States since it will allow companies to bring profits home at greatly reduced tax rates. American companies would no longer owe full taxes on overseas profits. Okay, et cetera, et cetera. New lower rate of 20 percent down from 35 percent. Mr. Trump predicts lots of good things are going to happen, including bringing back to our country uh, probably will end up being over four trillion. Uh, so, and then and, and it's going to be a number over four trillion. Trump says, but the United States has tried this before, and while companies did bring money back, they primarily used it to reward shareholders. The American Jobs Creation Act provided a one-time tax break for companies that wanted to repatriate their offshore profits. Companies brought home three hundred twelve billion at a rate of five to five percent. Although the break was intended to spur investment in hiring a plethora of studies. Now, maybe you think all the studies are fake. Maybe you don't believe it. Okay, fine. But a plethora of studies show that companies responded by spending billions buying back their shares, lifting their stock prices, and didn't expand their American workforces. Pfizer, for example, brought home $37 billion at the reduced rates and shed 10,000 workers. Hewlett-Packard repatriated more than $14 billion while eliminating more than 14,000 jobs. Uh, 
you know, I, I th- think about this like you're uh, like you're a guy, you're you're running a lemonade stand. OK, you're running a big lemonade stand and you got 10 employees at the, this is like the best lemonade stand ever. You got 10 employees and you, you've got, you know, because you're exp- expanding and, you, you know, get the limeade market going, too. And why isn't that ever caught on really, by the way? Everyone always prefers lemonade. I think limeade is kind of a nice, you know, switch it up a little. I, I like lime in my in my Perrier more than lemon. Uh, but you stash some of that limeade money overseas because you don't want to pay the full tax rate on it. And, and then you get a windfall because, OK, the Trump tax cut goes through. So now you get more. Now you bring back that cash that's stored overseas. You're already running a business at a profit, right? I mean, assuming that you're you're making money with this lemonade stand, and you're the guy who owns it, and now this money comes back overseas, you have ownership of of those funds. You're, I mean, you could pay your people more. You could invest in things, or you could also just keep the money. I, I need I need to understand what where the the impetus is for, and look, I, I'd rather have private a private enterprise and private individuals have it than the government, right? Better that it's here in the U.S. where it could be spent, where it could be a part of, you know, our economy than sitting in, in bank accounts overseas. I, I understand all that. I'm just, they're promising that this is going to be like economic nirvana for a little while here in this, not nirvana, but it's going to be so, so great. And you're going to feel an increase in your paycheck and all this and, these are politicians, everybody. Be skeptical. That's all. I'm just trying to advise skepticism about how great this is going to be. You'll notice that if they told you that they were cutting your tax rate to a flat rate of 20%, you'd have more money, right? No question. That would be giving you a raise. Right? That would be money that you would be keeping. No question. They can't do that, but they can do the corporate tax change. Someone explain that to me. They're saying there'll be reduced a reduced number of brackets. Okay, great, but where do the bracket brackets start and stop? So much of a focus on the corporate rate change. Not much of a focus on the individual rate change. Maybe they should maybe they've got this backwards, everybody. Maybe there should have been a drop for, hey, what is the average middle class family paying taxes right now? Okay, we're gonna drop that rate. Let's do that first. Then there could be no debate over, well, you have more money, less money. Is it going to help you, not help you? No, they went for corporate first. I'm sorry, but there is a corporatist wing of the Republican Party. The Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republican Party. It is a deep part of the swamp. And the one piece of legislation that it seems like is going to go through, and I'm still not even sure it's going to go through, gives corporations a tax cut. I mean, these ads for the Democrats write themselves, fair or unfair, they write themselves. Why, why aren't I getting a tax cut? Why aren't you getting a tax cut? Corporations are getting a tax I understand. You've had a lot of very smart, eminent economists and a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, all these guys, are the Reagan era. Yeah, I get it. Okay. But why is it that they're able to get a, a, a tax cut for corporations, but not a tax cut for you, for individual earners? That's not the, that is not the focus, everybody. Look at what the other look at, you know, they want you to look at this hand. Oh, corporate tax. It's so great. So great. What about the other hand? Or do you think you're paying too much in taxes? I think you are. Is this Republican Congress trying to help you or are they trying to help corporations that, as we know, are a major source of donations for campaigns? I'm just keeping it 100, everybody. 
Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to see it and be like, yeah, prosperity is going to come back to America if this tactic goes through. Um, not so sure. Not so sure. Not saying no. Just a bit skeptical. Okay, we got to talk about uh, North Korea. I know I promised I would. We're going to get into the details of nuclear missiles and what we can do about the whole Kim Jong-un situation. Stay with me. I'm a descendant of Pocahontas, a supporter of Donald Trump because he's a go-getter. You know, he sees what he needs to do and he does it. I know he uses Pocahontas sometimes, you know, with um, Elizabeth Warren. He said, well, well, does that offend you when I use that? And I told him, no, it doesn't offend me. Just like Pocahontas was a heroine, President Trump's going to be our hero. So that is a, and Tyrone, where where did we get that clip? Who was she talking to? I don't even know. What was that? We don't even, we're trying to figure it out right now. Oh, the Daily Caller. Thank, hat tip Daily Caller on that. Uh, they That was a, a descendant of Pocahontas. And she was saying that, you know, she is not bothered at all by Donald Trump uh, using the term. In fact, she thinks it's great. You know, I also saw one of the one of the uh, code talkers, I believe it was one of the Navajo code talkers, said earlier this week that they made them say Geronimo when they would jump out of planes. That didn't bother them. So there's that. Geronimo was, uh, I believe, he was a member of the Navajo Nation, right? That they were hunting down, uh, you know, U.S. soldiers were hunting all over the desert. Uh, this is yet another one of these instances where you have uh, leftist, predominantly white liberals, but leftist liberal types who claim to speak for the, uh, you know, the the embattled minorities of the country whomever they whichever one it might be at any given time and then we find out that you know actually the the people who have the greatest claim to offense should they wish to exercise that claim are like that doesn't really bother me and this has been the case this has been the case many times with the controversies over the appropriation of native american names and terminology for modern teams and implements and you know I, i'm sorry but you know the when you're we're calling it the apache helicopter because the apaches were fearsome warriors and the apache helicopter is a pretty kick butt piece of machinery it's this it's it is the opposite of disrespectful it is respectful it is reverence actually and you know the apache the comanche and uh you know the Look, I understand people get a little, they get a little touchier about uh, the Washington Redskins. I understand. Um, But a lot, there are a lot of other instances where the usage of Native American terms, imagery, iconography, whatever it may be, is in fact supported by some of the Native, uh, some of the Native tribes that still are are still around in this country. Uh, But the Elizabeth Warrens of the world are the ones who think that they get to speak for those uh, embattled minorities, uh, those discriminated against minority groups. But there you have it, Pocahontas. Uh, And I I will say that it is pretty astonishing that the Elizabeth Warren situation is still, they just act like it, it never happened, right? That she isn't somebody who had engaged in fraud and appropriate like I, I know we talked about it yesterday but so much outrage oh it was so they're saying it was so bigoted and racist what Trump said 
Uh, as an aside, the Pocahontas movie, uh, yeah, Pocahontas movie uh, by Disney, not very good. Of the Disney movies, really second tier, maybe even third tier. Uh, and and the main song, can you like sing with all the voices of the mountain or whatever? I don't even know what that means. And I'm all about like Aladdin and the Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, old school uh, Disney Robin Hood, Sword in the Stone. These are works. These are masterpieces, right? The Pocahontas movie was kind of meh. Little, little, I wasn't. I wasn't into it. Uh, not not recommended. We'll be right back. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. North Korea. The problem the administration has yet to solve. I don't even know if it's solvable. Uh, I'm increasingly of the mind that the end result of all of our efforts to get Kim Jong-un to stop advancing his nuclear weapons program will be the eventual acceptance of a nuclear program that we said we would never accept. That's what I see happening here. I could be wrong. We certainly have Lindsey Graham out there just stating out there stating that war uh, will happen before what I'm suggesting will happen. But I do not I do not, I do not think that's the case. I think that the provocations will continue. The sanctions regime against Kim Jong-un, what do we really think is going to happen? If we were to cut North Korea off from all banking transactions and all international financial activity, there would still be trade across the border with China, no matter what China says or tries to do. There would still be efforts to uh, engage in cyber theft, uh, black market operations, criminal enterprises. North, the North Korean regime will find some way to sustain itself financially. The country is already in a state of quasi-starvation. So how are we going to use economic pressure to give up or to force North Korea to give up the one thing that guarantees the survival of the regime when the one thing that the regime cares about before all else is its own survival? And we start to run into circles here. And given the reality of North Korea geographically, that it has U.S. troops in South Korea just across the border, that we have carrier groups in the Pacific, and that you have China adjoining it with a vast military and a large nuclear arsenal of its own, I think we're going to enter into a state of deterrence. I think we will reach a place here, and it will probably happen while Trump is in office, depends on how long he's in office, where it, it'll never nece- it'll never be obvious and declared that Kim Jong Un can, well, they may declare it, but we'll never know for sure if they could hit New York City, D.C., or name any place in the country with a nuclear missile. But we will be living with the belief that they probably could, and I don't think we're going to take preemptive military action. And once Kim Jong Un has that capability, then. 
There's no reason for him to transgress so egregiously that it would invite a massive military retaliation from us because his regime will be safe. There will not be a threat of invasion and overthrow. That is a lesson the dictators have taken from the fate of Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein. You'll notice that the Assad regime decided to go all in and used, I should note, chemical weapons many times. Many times. And the international community did not try to overthrow Assad. We think of it as he used chemical weapons just to beat back the anti-Assad rebellion, but he may also have been sending a very clear message that if you come for me, there will be a much broader usage of chemical weapons. So what makes us think that Kim Jong-un is going to respond to the pressure campaign now differently than he has in the past? I don't have an answer for you other than to say that I think that we end up learning to live with a fully nuclear, fully nuclear weaponized North Korea. That's, that's what I think the future holds for us. I don't think it holds a massive U.S. Because remember, this is not like we blow up their airfields and call it a day. If we go after North Korea militarily with a first strike of any kind, it would have to be overwhelming. It would have to be decisive. And unless I am missing something, millions of people would die in North Korea and perhaps in South Korea, too. So I do not see this changing. I see this going in one direction, one direction only, and that is a fully nuclear, fully weaponized North Korea. We'll have a missile expert joining us in just a minute to talk about this. Stay with me. Grocers, contractors, support this plan. We have tremendous support for this plan. Tremendous, because these massive tax cuts will be rocket fuel. (laughs) Little rocket, man. Rocket fuel for the American economy. He is a sick puppy. Little rocket man and a sick puppy. That is how President Trump has referred to Kim Jong-un in the last 24 hours. After the missile launch that some are saying means that they could at least hit anywhere in the world with a missile, not yet clear what they could put on that missile, how concerned should we all be? We've got Rebecca Heinrichs joining us now. She's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She specializes in nuclear deterrence, missile defense, and counterproliferation. This is a lady who knows nuclear missiles. Great to have you back, Rebecca. Great to be here, Buck. Thanks. Okay, so just let's go. Some of this I talked about yesterday as part of the news cycle, but just for for review for everyone listening, and perhaps it might be the first time some of them will hear it, why was the launch yesterday such a big deal? Well, it was a big deal because it's the um, they've demonstrated the furthest range that they've ever demonstrated. Um, it was a new missile, in fact, called the Wasong-15, um, and the North Koreans have claimed now that they have realized their goal, which is to have a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile that can reach anywhere in the United States. And so that's what they claim they've demonstrated. They surely demonstrated that they have the range. Um, what we don't know is exactly what was, the, what was on the payload. What was the payload? How heavy was it? And is it heavy enough to be um, a, a miniaturized a nuclear warhead? 
Now, how hard is it at this stage? You know, it looks to me, and I'm, I'm not a missile guy, but uh, it looks to me, Rebecca, like they've covered a vast uh, amount of the distance. If, if it's square one is the, the basics of the nu- you know, nuclear fuel cycle and figuring all that stuff, and, and now we're at the point where they're, they've got the missile, how much harder is it? to get to the miniaturization of the nuclear weapons they already have to put on the missile? And what kind of timeline should we be thinking of before they'd be able to do that? Um, I, I think that there's a good amount of evidence that they can probably already do it. Um, back in, it was a few years ago, I think it was 2012, there was a open hearing in Congress in the House Armed Services Committee in which one of the members um, talked about what was in an open, unclassified section of a Pentagon report in which it said that we think that through modeling, that, that you know, we, we plug in what we know, the evidence that we've seen, and then through modeling, you know, the intelligence community believes that if North Korea really wanted to do it, they could, they could probably put a miniaturized warhead on a missile and deliver it to the United States, even if it might be unreliable, meaning it could blow up, you know, they might only get they might not be able to get all of them off if they sent multiple ones, but they could they could probably do it. It might not land in New York, but it could land in Kansas, um, that sort of thing. So um, if they don't have it, then, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the very near future. Um, what they're trying to do at this point is increase the reliability. So they want to increase um, in our own, in, you know, the minds of Americans that they really do have the ability and can do it and place it where they want to. And that's kind of the where we are right now. And what the Trump administration is trying to do is prevent them from getting a reliable nuclear ICBM. But, but this was definitely, I mean, they demonstrated a, an increased capability yesterday. And until there is a true change in the minds of Kim or in the minds of China that ultimately has the leverage against Kim, um, they're going to have it and they're going to have more than one. I, and I want to ask you, Rebecca, I'm at the point now and as I've been saying, where my belief, I, I know, you know, you had Lindsey Graham talking about how if they don't stop, we're going to go to war. I don't believe that's true. Uh, and I'm not saying that that I wish it were true, but I think we're heading for North Korea doesn't change its behavior at all. We keep trying to ratchet up sanctions. And then we wake up one day and in some sense, we might already be there where we just learn to live with the fact that North Korea has ICBMs that are nuclear that can hit us anywhere. Yeah, so there's two schools of thought. That's definitely one of them. I'm in a slightly different school, and that's what it all comes down to what the Trump administration is, is actually willing to tolerate. Um, if, if, if the Trump administration is sort of bluffing at this point that we aren't going to tolerate that they have a reliable ICBM, then what you say is true, because there's no putting the genie back in the bottle for the next administration or for the Trump administration's second term. We really are at the very last window of opportunity if, if, we're going to, um, if we're going to have any, any luck at all in enforcing China, really is what it's going to take, forcing China to help us um, either swap out Kim with somebody else or, or roll back their nuclear missile program. That's, that's really what we're facing at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, can, can the United States live with a nuclear North Korea that can hit anywhere in the United States? Um, I would suggest no, that we cannot. That that means that we're going to be blackmailed and coerced um, by by Kim, who, by the way, I don't think is crazy. I think he's incredibly rational. I just think he's a cool dictator um, who doesn't care about um, human life. 
except for his own and his own regime. So, so that, that is the dynamic right now. Is, is Nikki Haley and, and Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis and President Trump bluffing that we won't tolerate it? Um, if, if they are not bluffing, then I do think after we exhaust all these options, then military force um, is inevitable. Wow. You think then we might actually go for it if at the end of the line here there's no change. But I would just want to know what would be the uh, the inciting incident, if you will. Sure. What, what would be the you know, if I wake up one day and there's a news story on the front page of the of the New York Times and it says, North Korea now, you know, confirmed North Korea now has nuclear missile capability to hit anywhere. We are at that point. I, I mean, is it going to be is is war imminent then? Or are, are we going to well, wait no, six months? Or we... I think it's a, it's a great question. It's a great question. I th- what I think is um, what North Korea has to do to prove that it has a reliable ICBM capability is they've got to launch. They have to actually test launch a missile, an ICBM with a nuclear warhead on top of it. And, um, and, and once they've demonstrated that they've done that, um, if, they, if you know, I, I think that, that, that that'll probably be it. Um, they can also miscalculate. If you, if you watch what Kim has done, every missile test that he has actually launched has been just shy of what I would consider red lines. And these are just Rebecca's own red lines. This is not what the Trump administration has called red lines, but... Um, it, it, it's it's shooting missiles over Japan, but it's doing so over sparsely populated areas. Um, it, it has not shot one towards the U.S. territory of Guam. Um, it had, you know, so it's it's sort of pushing right up against the line without being overly aggressive. If the if the North Koreans are foolish enough to do something so aggressive like that, like shoot it over the mainland of, of Japan um, or shoot it uh, towards Guam. Um, that is an act of aggression, and I think that the United States and our allies would totally be right to to defend themselves. Um, so that also might cause. But but is, is it fair to say that Rebecca, that if we're if the goal, and we're speaking to Rebecca Heinrichs of the Hudson Institute, uh, Rebecca, if the goal is to eliminate that capability that the Kim regime almost have, if it if it does not already, of of nuclear ICBMs, uh, mm-hmm. then. It's not like this is an airstrike and it's done. I mean, that's that's the no. other part is I think people don't realize. I mean, I, I read an article last night on the front page of, uh, of FoxNews.com saying, you know, we should just blow up the launch pad. Uh, if we're going to stop this program, we're going to blow up a lot of launch pads and a lot of stuff yeah. along with it. No, it'll, and a lot of people will die. I mean, when I when I when I talk about what what I'm you know what I think is that will be the necessary course if we exhaust all of these diplomatic options, which by the way. When I say diplomatic options, I'm not talking about negotiating with the North Koreans right away. I'm talking about all of these sanctions. I mean, we haven't even we we haven't done the worst kinds of sanctions yet, which are sanctioning Chinese banks. So we've got some ways to go before we get to the point where we're you know really talking about um, military force here. There, there's more on this pressure campaign um, that we haven't that we haven't exhausted yet. Um, but back but back to the actual military strike. Yeah, it would have to be overwhelming. It would have to be a massive, overwhelming strike, because right now our South Korean allies, U.S. forces and their families that are deployed in South Korea are basically, I mean, they are being held hostage right now by by North Korean missiles that can already reach there. So we're going to have to wipe out conventional artillery. We're going to have to wipe out their missile programs. The the Um, annihilation of North Korea is what we're talking about here. We're talking about at least at least their nuclear missile program and 
you know, and, and any military capability they have with conventional artillery, with chemical weapons, with possible biological weapons to retaliate against South Korea. Yeah, we're going to have to take it all out, and 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 it and it'll be terrible, and it's something that I want to avoid. But what I have been trying to to articulate um, for the past you know year now is in order to avoid that, we have got to convince the Chinese that we're willing to do it because nobody um, would like to avoid that, obviously more than us, but. Um, but the Chinese as well. The Chinese don't want war on the Korean Peninsula, certainly. So, um, you know, our best our best bet at this point is to convince the Chinese that we're willing to do it. Because, I mean, when when I talk about being coerced and blackmailed by the North Koreans, I'm that means you know we wouldn't be able to do anything in the Pacific without caring about what Kim in North Korea thinks about it, because he can threaten us with a nuclear ICBM, and I just don't think that that's an acceptable um, fate. That 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 this presidency is willing to accept. One more for you, Rebecca. I just want to ask you before we have to run into a break. Uh, the Assuming that, the, let's just say that my sense here ended up being what ends up happening, which is that we just kind of, we don't really know what their full capability is, but it's widely understood that they probably could hit anywhere with an ICBM, and we don't decide the mil- to go with the military option. How soundly can we sleep at night under the blanket of, what, Aegis missile cruisers and, and other means of, of trying to intercept missiles that are out there uh, to protect us? Great question. Um, so first, I want to make be real clear, clear too. I, I don't think that the United States is going to do a preemptive strike. I think it will be in response to an act of aggression that we see, um, in, including some of those things I just laid out. Um, but to the, the missile defense point, um, our missile defense systems are good. They're not they're not um, as good as they could be. Uh, we, we, no matter what happens at this point, I, I mean, I hope that, this, that the American people um, understand at this point that um, our missile defense systems are, are not anywhere where they should be. And regardless of what happens in North Korea, we've got to get serious. And, when, and we've got to increase the number of Aegis ships, increase the number of interceptors here in the U.S. The Trump administration, to their credit, have authorized and put funding towards 20 more bullets, I call them, that you know, can be put in the homeland to intercept North Korean missiles, um, but we're going to have to be qualitatively better, meaning new capabilities. That might mean interceptors in space, which we've avoided for for decades because we didn't want to upset the Chinese. But if the Chinese are not going to help us constrain Kim, we will have no other choice but to seriously increase American defense capabilities, and they're not going to like it. Rebecca Heinrichs of the Hudson Institute. You can go to Hudson.org and check out her uh, latest writing. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining. Great to have you. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, we are going to roll into a break. Uh, when we come back, going to talk to you about the Mueller probe, which I have not been avoiding. I will talk to you about that. We'll be right back. The Mueller probe continues on. Team, some of you have uh, sent me emails in the last week or so saying, hey, why aren't you covering the latest uh, developments in the Mueller investigation And I think that you have some sense that I'm avoiding it, maybe, or that that I'm unwilling to talk about it. And I'm telling you, it's not that at all. It's that there's nothing really to report on yet, other than there are rumors out there, really, uh, unverified at this point, that there might be some kind of a plea deal with General Flynn. Now, let me state clearly and categorically that a plea deal with General Flynn does not mean that 
they have anything on anybody up the chain. It just may mean that Flynn has agreed to you know, testify or, or provide information to them. Uh, but it doesn't mean that anything necessarily is, is going to happen to anyone else involved in the investigation. They're not going to get Trump on Russia collusion. Collusion is not a crime. This whole special counsel is a disaster. And I have been saying it from day one. You guys who have been listening and gals listening to this show from when I started Last February, no, I was opposed to the special counsel all along. It is just a political weapon. There was no, there is no underlying crime for them even to investigate. But what you have now is an unbounded witch hunt. And Mueller and his top people, who it's just full of Democrats, are out there hunting for scalps. They may or may not manage to send Manafort away to a minimum security federal prison for a few years, we'll see. But it has nothing to do with national security implications. It has nothing to do with the initial allegations that led to all this, which is Russia collusion. They're just saying that Mueller wasn't paying taxes on money that he was making. Well, you know, I think it's always an important test whenever we're talking about criminal conduct, right? And I'm borrowing this from the the late brilliant Christopher Hitchens, who said that, you know, there are the crimes where you could sit down to lunch with somebody and they say, yeah, I did a stint in the pen for the following. And you go, ah, you know, rough stuff. You know, sorry to hear that. You paid your debt to society. White collar stuff, some kind of fraud. Not to say that it's OK, but just that, you know, you don't revile in horror you know, somebody ran a mortgage scam or something, or they engage in some, uh, I don't know, kiting some checks, something like that. Bad criminal. Maybe they did some time for it, but it doesn't make them a bad person, right? It means they made a bad choice. Then there are the crimes where if you sat down to lunch with somebody and they told you about them, you'd be like, this lunch is over. I don't have to tell you what they are because you already know. But just because something is criminal, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a, a terrible, immoral act that we should all revile the person for all eternity, right? After all, if we are Christians, we are supposed to forgive to the extent that we can. Uh, and the Manafort stuff is, does this bother you? Are you are you uh, losing sleep at night because Manafort maybe didn't pay some taxes on some income he made as a shady political consultant? Uh, not me. Like I said, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it's not that big a deal. It's not special counsel investigation level big. And with Flynn, I can already tell you it's going to be the same crap. They're going to run a whole week of news stories, assuming there are charges against General Flynn. Now, keep in mind, that's going to be that that's a, a more politically aggressive move because Manafort was fired during the campaign. Flynn was national security advisor. Flynn uh, was a general with decades of service to his country. And going after him is moving up, uh, moving up the pyramid, if you will, of the Trump administration and, and the power structure or the formerly of the Trump administration. Uh, and Flynn is just a more sympathetic character than Manafort. His service to his country, his military service, just, there's just no question about it. They're going to get him on not lo- not registering as a foreign agent and doing some lobbying for Turkey. As an aside, 
I do. I've come across this in the past. Turkey has been very aggressive in D.C. in recent years. I even had the somewhat uh, unsavory experience some years ago, and I think a few of you listening may remember, of having a person who was supposed to be a regional expert or an SME, a subject matter expert, come on my show to talk about uh, the, I forget even what the specific news peg was at the time, but something to do with Turkey. And we got into the Armenian genocide, and all of a sudden this person who's an American is saying, well, they're, you know, they're really, the Armenian genocide was overblown or something to that effect. And I, I practically you know, ripped the microphone off my desk and threw it across the room. And then I found out that this guy was actually part of a think tank, but it's really a, a paid a paid shill for the Turkish government. And if you're going to work for the Turkish government, you have to deny the Armenian genocide. And years ago, I dated uh, very seriously for a few years an Armenian uh, girl. She was a young woman. You know, we were in our mid-20s. Uh, and, you know, her whole family was Armenian. And so I learned a great deal from them, from talking to them about how the genocide still plays a very large role in their culture and, and history and background, and that the Turks still deny this is a complete and utter disgrace. But the, the, the Turkish government is paying people to run interference for an increasingly authoritarian and Islamist Turkey. Should Flynn have been taking that cash? No. Is it problematic for the national security advisor to this administration to be so cozy with a government that I think we need to be having some very tough, real talk with. Yeah, it's problematic. But is is Flynn and was Flynn involved in some conspiracy to you know, work with the Russians to subvert the U.S. government or the election? No, but they're going to come out once again with a, a sensationalized version of events on Flynn. And, and so I, I see this piece. Here's the piece on. It's on TheHill.com, and here's what it is. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has delayed the testimony of an associate to former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn before a grand jury due to the possibility of reaching a plea deal, according to CNN. A public relations consultant hired by Flynn's lobbying firm, who was scheduled to testify in December in a time-sensitive manner, has been delayed from testifying with no reason given. The move comes after Flynn's attorneys met with Mueller's attorneys on Monday and after it was announced that Flynn had terminated his information-sharing agreement with President Trump's legal team. Mueller's team is reported to have sufficient evidence already to indict both Flynn and his son, Michael Flynn Jr., who also worked for the Trump campaign. End quote. Okay, indict them for what? I repeat this to you because it is so important, because I've been in the room when these discussions have been had, not for the Mueller probe, obviously, but in other contexts. I have been in the room with law enforcement, and you once you're around the whole do we let this slide or not discussion and see that it really does fall to the the prosecutorial discretion, which is a kind of a, a euphemism at times for the whims of the people in the room with the power at the time to make the decision. You recognize that there is a very fine line between, all right, this is conduct where nobody was harmed and it would be sufficient to maybe just give a warning to the individual or deferred prosecution versus, no, we're going to make an example of somebody. 
And there are legal ways to explain those differences, right? They'll call it sometimes deterrence prosecution. Um, and that's that's why they'll go after for ex- a great example of this. If you're looking for one is, I mean, here in New York City, once a, you know, once every six months or 12 months, there'll be some story about a person that's prosecuted for benefits fraud, right? Welfare fraud. But they don't prosecute somebody who's on and off the streets, homeless, and they're not going to prosecute that person for benefits fraud. They prosecute somebody who's collecting 15000 a month from the city by faking dependents and collecting their, you know, their dead grandma's Social Security checks and whatever and whatever. And they make an example of that person to show that the law will, in fact, be followed, will be upheld. But in reality, if you're low level, they kind of just let it they let it slide. And that's what I think you're going to see here with the whole Flynn case is do they try to trump up what's really pretty minor, small potatoes behavior? And what they have to realize, what Mueller's team is going to have to realize is that if they charge Flynn with failing to register as a foreign agent, which they already charged Manafort with, and if they charge him with a process crime like lying to the FBI, which I think is a very distinct possibility, Then we get to have a whole discussion about, oh, but Hillary, according to the inspector general of the intelligence community, had incredibly sensitive, life-threatening level material on her unclassified email system, multiple instances of it, and the FBI made it disappear. Then we get to have a discussion about how the Clinton Foundation is just a giant slush fund for buying political influence and for peddling influence to make the Clintons very wealthy, and no charges have been brought on that. No investigation has occurred of that by any law enforcement. Peter Schweitzer with Clinton Cash did his own as a journalist. And then we can also get to lying to the FBI. That's a crime. If Flynn is in fact charged with that, it would mean that it's a federal crime for uh, for a career military officer, General Michael Flynn, to lie to, the, to, lie to federal authority. But Bill Clinton can lie under oath, and that's not a crime, just because they say it is. This is, we are entering troubling times. Our faith in institutions is being rocked, and in many cases being shattered, based on the truth. And this Mueller probe could, I think, really shake us to our political foundations here, because this, this is just, it's all one big rolling political hit so far. That's all it is. That's that's what I see it as, at least. So I, I'm not avoiding the subject. I just don't have a lot of new to tell you about yet. But I think we will. I think we will very soon. And uh, we will dive into that together. All right, team, I'll be uh, I'll be back with much more, including Team Buck Speaks later this hour. Stay with me. I recall being at CNN. I know. I know. Hashtag fake news during the election cycle and occasionally coming up against one of the pro Hillary Blacks that they employed uh, in large numbers. And then there's the anchors who I repeat myself. Uh, but I remember talking about the Clinton Foundation and how corrupt and gross the whole thing was. And they were, oh, no, it's about charity. And don't you want to help the starving children of the world? Why are you such a big meanie? The Clinton Foundation's about helping people. It's charity. It's like, are we are we really all going to play dumb on this? We're not like a bunch of idiots. And I knew. 
I knew, and, and the answer was yes, by the way. They, they were acting like a bunch of idiots on this. But I, I was in those debates and those discussions. I, I held my ground as best I could before they're like, go to commercial, go to commercial. Make the kid with the poofy hair shut up. Close, close, close his mic, close his mic. Um, but, you know, I knew at some point we would see the truth because we would know what the donations to the Clinton Foundation were. Let, let's establish a very basic concept here. If, in fact, the Clinton Foundation, which over the course of its existence has raised over a billion dollars, if, in fact, it was about helping people and not a massive influence peddling and access selling scheme, then it shouldn't matter whether or not Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States. It shouldn't matter what the Clintons political fortunes are because they still have all of their connections all over the world. And if they want to help people, if the money that they're receiving is supposed to go to the, you know, the orphans of the world and educating single mothers in you know, Uzbekistan and whatever it may be combating climate change. They love these these grandiose sounding. I've actually done some research and, and poked around on the Clinton Foundation websites, and it's a lot of excuses for very expensive conferences that will have no measurable action afterwards. And the Clintons spent tens of millions of dollars. I believe it was 50 million was the figure that I saw on private jet travel. Now, even for private jets, that's not to buy them. That's just to use them. That's a lot of private jet travel for a charity. It's a lot of flying around. And you should know that the way it worked with Hillary was if you were an executive who had a private jet that you weren't using, you could loan it to one of the Clinton Foundation principals, Hillary, Bill. Hey, what's up? I love I love private jets, especially when they have a big waterbed in the back. I love waterbeds, man. They're, they're a party. Hey, where are the stewardesses? Uh, you know, you have this mentality out there that you can just you, you – can claim that it's a charity and that it's fine. They would allow different corporations. They would allow different corporations to donate and individuals to donate to the Clinton Foundation. But it was for the Clintons private use. They got a tax write off. The Clintons got free jet trial. I mean, it's just gross. The whole thing was disgusting. OK, I have been saying on this show the entire year that I've been on the on the air here. With uh, this network. That. Just wait until you see what the donations are this year after Hillary's lost. And I believe, and we can track it down, but I believe I've said 30% was what I would guess the drop-off in donations to the Clinton Foundation would be. Uh, but it, here's actually what I can tell you. And this is courtesy of the New York Post. This came out a couple of weeks ago. Not much, not much in this, uh, not much attention in this, uh, on this, I should say. Quote, donations to the Clinton Foundation took a precipitous dive for a second year in a row as Justice Department officials mulled whether they would appoint a special prosecutor to probe the nonprofit's alleged unlawful dealings. Here's the number, folks. Contributions to the Bill, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation fell by 42 percent. From $108 million to $63 million in 2016, the year 
that Hillary Clinton lost her bid for the president, according to the group's latest federal tax filings, which were filed last or released last week. End quote. Oh, wait, there's one more thing. Donations had already plummeted 37 percent. In 2015, when the nonprofit was in disarray amid pay-to-play allegations and following the resignation of one of its key executives. Hmm. You don't say. You mean that this global charity that was supposed to do so much good work and it was all about charity that people around the world and here at home stopped giving it money in large numbers. Right around the time when, one, people were... 2015... People are starting to figure out that, you know, this is this game's not going to continue, that everyone's realizing what's going on with the Clinton Foundation. So that dropped 37 percent. And then in 2016, it dropped 42 percent. I'm guessing that when you look at the 2017 numbers compared to what it was in, say, 2015 or 2014, you're looking at like a 75 percent drop off. I said 30, and for 2016, it was 42. Now for 2017, I'm going to guess it's even bigger. But the reason I'm telling you this is because it was obvious all along that this was a front, that this was largely a scam. It was the facade of a charity and the reality of a political action committee and a brand exercise, a brand vehicle for Clinton Incorporated. That's what this was. And a lot of people who were paid all kinds of money to be on TV and to write articles were, oh, I think it's a charity. It's a charity. Why do you hate charity? Bunch of bozos. It was not a charity. It was, in fact, a front for the Clinton's political operations that if you were an American citizen, I should note, you got a tax break for donating to. And it was supporting the Clinton's lavish jet set lifestyle and everyone who went on tv and said that the clinton foundation was beyond reproach or it wasn't a giant scam should be ashamed but one of the problems with clintonistas and clintonistos is they have no shame all right i'll be back with much more including some team buck speaks stay with me I want to share with you an excerpt that has been getting more attention lately on social media. It was written back in the early 90s. And before I even tell you who wrote it, I I just want to read to you. This is from now uh, almost 30 years ago. This was what an author described as a future in this country that we could all foresee. Quote, I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues. When the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. The dumbing down of America 
is most evident in the slow decay of substantive content in the enormously influential media. The 30 second sound bites now down to 10 seconds or less. Lowest common denominator programming, credulous presentations on pseudoscience and superstition, but especially a kind of celebration of ignorance. End quote. That's from Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World. And he wrote that back in the 90s. And it is uh, pretty chilling to look at this now and apply it to what's going on in this country and around all of us. And given how many of these media idols, and I mean that really in the sense of the biblical false idol, have fallen recently, and we've seen how much uh, just disgraceful conduct is widespread among those who are so fortunate. Right now, the media landscape is changing very, very rapidly, but there will not be another generation of superstar newsreaders making tens of millions of dollars and uh, apparently beloved by the American masses the way there has in the past. It just won't exist anymore. That's not going to be something that can happen for any of us who are in the media. And I look at these people like the Matt Lowers and the Charlie Roses, and I just think to myself, what ungrateful, destructive refuse these people really are. And I would just note that you should be on guard right now, because even on our own side, there is an opportunism in the media that is taking hold and that is far too powerful Uh, There are some of the least ethical and least intelligent voices from within the right that on that are getting much more prominence and much greater professional elevation than they ever should. This is just a fact. It's just true. And I see it happening and I don't spend much time on it here in the show because for one, I don't do the petty personal squabble stuff. I don't use this radio platform as a means of trying to start feuds with other people. But I also view what I do as meaningful to me and to all of you who do me the great honor of listening to this show. Information, ideas, principles, these are powerful things. And the media is the single best mechanism that I know of to defend these, to express them, and to spread them to the greatest degree possible. And there are just so many frauds out there right now, so many ignoramuses. And I I don't want to name people because it's not really up to me to name them, but it is, I feel, something of my obligation to just say to you all, be aware I I am giving you fair warning that there are more and they're on our side of the political aisle as well. There are more who will be exposed, not just as uh, people engaged in reprehensible uh, personal conduct or, or professional conduct, but that are just frauds that are completely opportunistic, that will say and do anything at any point in time that gets clicks 
that gets ratings, that gets money and power for them. And they will do it no matter how much it undermines and corrodes the very movement that they claim to be a part of. I am worried about this these days. Uh, On the one hand, I mean, when I say I'm worried, I'm worried that they're becoming far too powerful and that not enough people are seeing some of these demagogues for who they are. On the left, certainly they are being exposed more and more. Uh, I just saw that BuzzFeed, for example, this isn't about an individual, that's an organization, but BuzzFeed is laying off 100 people. Now, I have a, a basic human sympathy for anyone who gets fired from no wrongdoing of their own. Uh, I feel badly for those BuzzFeed staffers. And if one of them came to me person to person and said, hey, Buck, if, you know, if I knew them or even if not, and they said, hey, Buck, can you help me? In good faith, I would try to help them. But as an organization, BuzzFeed has been a mirage, in my opinion. You would know this from the outside, but it has been propped up with a tremendous amount of venture capital all along. It has been investing in, well, that's a nice way of saying it. It has been basically buying traffic via Facebook and other platforms for a long time. And its underlying principle, or if you could call it that, its approach was come for the cat videos, stay for the serious political analysis. And that just doesn't work. And I've known that all along. And I can actually remember to my earliest days at The Blaze with a former Blaze executive having debates about how, you know, that's not how you build a brand. You don't build a brand by just doing whatever works in the moment. Consequences be darned and integrity and ethics and any sense of professional pride in a worthwhile product discarded. That's not how you do it. And I've seen that that was the case with BuzzFeed all along. Gawker, which many of you probably don't even know much or care much about, it is defunct now. It was taken out by Peter Thiel. One of the greatest things that he's ever done. Forget about PayPal and all that other stuff. And Gawker was just a cesspool. It was a disgrace. And it was trafficking in the destruction of people's reputations and lives for profit. Left wing, of course. BuzzFeed. Left wing. These are Democrat-friendly, DNC-aligned, left-wing propaganda institutions. And I think, finally, there is some truth coming out about what they really are, and some of them are suffering much-needed consequences. But back to uh, just my initial point about that Carl Sagan, which we could talk, there's a whole lot of different aspects of it that are worth discussing uh, but the willingness to question those author- question those in authority and the technological powers in the hands of a very few, that's absolutely happening. Those of you who listen to this show know that I've been very concerned about the power of Silicon Valley, which is incredibly left-wing and progressive, in determining our political futures and really determining the future of this country and just doing so quietly and through through the the prism and and the cover of algorithms and, oh, we're just platforms. We're not propaganda organizations. But of course they are. And they are way too powerful. And the power that used to be in the hands of the traditional mainstream media, which they still are strong, but not what they used to be, has largely been transferred into the social media and internet search and, and other mega companies out in Silicon Valley. So 
that's something to be aware of. And, and then just also from my perspective, you know, keep your keep your ears and your eyes open for conservatives who are just they're desperate for attention in the media. They'll say anything. They'll do anything. They will change what they say at the drop of a hat. And they don't bring anything to the table other than just shouting and yelling and making a, a, a scene of themselves and trying to profit off of it. Because there's far too much of that going on these days. You know, I, I know the difference between a media performer, a media analyst, and a think tanker. You know, a lot of think tank people that I've known in the past are angry that they don't get more they don't get more attention for their work. But the truth is they're not very good, generally speaking, many of them are not very good at presenting their work in a media format. They're good writers, but they're not good on television or they're OK on television, but they're bad on radio. These are different skill sets. But on the right these days, we have a lot of people who are pretty worthless when it comes to what they can bring to the table, what their background, what their experience and their knowledge is on any issue. But they understand how to get a crowd worked up and they understand how to exploit the moments within our populist movement here that are more about getting a mob whipped up than they are about taking care of those who need a bit more attention in this country. You know, my parents listen to this show pretty much every single night. Uh, I have close friends who listen to the show. I'm, I'm putting myself and, and my integrity and my research and my thoughts and knowledge and, and everything I can on the line night after night. And I try to just run my own race and do my own thing. I, I don't get too into the, well, what about this person and look what they're doing and so-and-so is dumb. And, but I do because I respect your time and I respect your ability. If you're listening to the show, uh, this is self-serving, but it's true. If you're listening to the show, you're somebody who actually cares about information and integrity as well as entertainment. Um, just be, be wary. There has been a, a shift within conservative media where some great people have come to prominence as part of Trumpism, but a lot of frauds, fakers, hypocrites, liars, and scoundrels have also used this moment for their own purposes. So just wanted to put that out there. We'll, we'll finish up with Team Buck Speaks here in a minute. Stay with me. All right, everybody, it is time for some Team Buck Speaks. A little reminder, if you would like to uh, become a part of Team Buck Speaks, you can send us your thoughts at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Also, uh, please do click follow on that page. We've got a lot of new stuff coming in 2018. And if you are part of our Facebook family, you'll be seeing all the stuff that we post. So uh, please do click follow there. And if you want to send us an email, if you want to kick it a little old school, by all means, officialteambuck at gmail.com. That's officialteambuck at gmail.com. All right. Kelly writes in with the following. Can you send me your preferred book reading list? You mentioned recently that if you could recommend only one book, it would be a world lit only by fire. What are some others that are your favorites? These are gift ideas for my son who has followed you for several years. Uh, well, then I asked Kelly because I often respond to messages. Uh, hey, Kelly, uh, you looking for fiction or nonfiction or history books? Kelly wrote back both. My son is in the military intelligence. He has always enjoyed military history, 
but has a love for politics as well. Uh, so I would say here's here's what I've got for you, Kelly. Um, if you're looking for a great history book, I would recommend. Uh, well, th- there's so many, but uh, I would recommend Crowley Empire of the Seas. Uh, it touches on the Battle of Lepanto as well as some of the events preceding it. I think that's fantastic. Also, 1453 by Crowley on the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks. I would highly recommend that. Clearly, my interests run in a, in a certain period. A lot of you are yelling right now probably about the best Civil War book or World War II book. I have not read it yet, but I do have a signed copy on my desk of Victor Davis Hansen's The Second World Wars. Uh, based on Victor's other work, I'm sure that it's a phenomenal book. If you're looking for biographies, the biography of Peter the Great, which I've mentioned before, uh, by Massey, Robert K. Massey, is phenomenal. If you're willing to take on quite a project, The Power Broker is a very well-regarded biography that really explains a lot about politics and bureaucracy. It's excellent, but 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 a little it's massive and a little dry. Um, that would be those would be the recommendations that come to mind. Uh, although I'm also anything Orwell and people think they they're oh, I've read 1984. and oh I've read Animal Farm. Well, have you read Homage to Catalonia? It's a phenomenal memoir of Orwell's time. Uh, Orwell, formerly Eric Blair as his real name, Uh fighting alongside the uh, Spanish par- Spanish Republicans against uh, fascism. I would very much recommend that. Also, anything by Rudyard Kipling. Kipling is very much uh, considered a colonialist writer now, so people, he gets a rough time from the Academy, but he had lots of brilliant work. And Kim, which is really a spy novel set in a historical period, is very much still worth the read. And there are even some insights, I think, about the political situation of South Asia that you could get from reading Rudyard Kipling's Kim. So anything Orwell, anything Kipling, anything by Massey. And if you want something that's kind of a little more generic, uh, McCullough's biographies are very readable. I got to tell you, I picked up, I know he's treated like a really big deal, but I tried to read Ron Chernow's Andrew Jackson biography and I'm somebody who reads a lot of history a lot of biographies I was like this is just boring I, I couldn't I, I bailed on it maybe it would get better but I bailed on it so I'm not a Chernow person some people are uh, I, I would probably take McCullough over Chernow so I hope that's helpful and I, I will think about putting together more lists to post them on Facebook yet another reason for you to follow me on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton uh, Tyler writes in, hey, when are you going to do a video for Prager University? Uh, well, and I responded to Tyler when they asked me, maybe. And he wrote, well, I hope they ask you soon. Well, Tyler, me too. I'd love to do a video for Prager University. Uh, I think Dennis Prager does really fine work. Um, and with that, I think I'm going to have to close out the show today. I'll do more. Well, every day, I think, towards the end of the show, we'll get in some Team Buck Speaks because I think it's really important to have your thoughts represented on the show as frequently as I can. Uh, So thank you again for writing in. Thank you for joining me here on the show. Very much appreciated. And I would also uh, note that you can download the podcast. And if you do so, you will therefore be (laughs) therefore. No, but you, you will be 
in line to get the deep dives, which will start in January. So subscribe now. Go to Buck Saxon with America now on iTunes. Click subscribe and you will be receiving that. It's free. You'll be receiving that feed. And uh, please, please take the uh, holidays we're in now to take it as an opportunity to spread the word. If, if you're like, I don't know what to talk about right now with these people I'm around, just give it a shot. Be like, hey, do you listen to this guy, this guy named Buck Sexton? He's got a fun radio show. Give it a shot. Let me know how it goes. All right, team, more coming tomorrow. Until then, shields high.